I just want you to know that like Timothy from Paul, there's grace, mercy, and peace for you. Thank you for listening to the Shoreline Podcast. The following message was preached on Mother's Day 2019 at Shoreline Church. Today we cover a passage from 2 Timothy chapter 1, 1 through 7. Several years ago, I was telling my daughter London uh, that we needed to get ready for Mother's Day that was coming up that weekend. And she kind of looked up uh, with these big, you know, innocent six-year-old, um, completely pure-hearted, you know, eyes. And she said, well, wait a minute, Daddy. When is Kids Day? When is Kids Day? And I said, oh, honey, every day is Kids Day. <laughs> this morning, we want to take a moment to honor mothers and really anyone who's a spiritual influence in our lives. Uh, what, we, what I want to set up um, today before we jump into our, um, our sermon is really the truth that you don't necessarily have to be uh, the most known, the most standout, the most like professional hero to make an impact in someone else's life, to make it a lasting and eternal impact. But all of us can have some type of a legacy that we leave in someone else's life spiritually, uh, including our own kids. But even if someone's not our own children, uh, we can actually make an impact. And so we're going to be looking at a person in Scripture who continued the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Uh, now, I consider the Apostle Paul perhaps the greatest theologian, the greatest uh, missy, uh, like missionary, um, the greatest church leader, or for that matter, perhaps the greatest Christian in all of church history. So who was the person that Paul hands the baton off to to carry on this advancement of the gospel to the next generation? Um, who carried the mantle as Paul ended his race? Who was it that carried on in his footsteps and continued to preach and teach and make disciples of the next generation? Well, in that book that I referenced, Devoted, Tim Challey says this. He says, his name appears again and again in the New Testament as one of Paul's most loyal friends and most trusted companions. He was there when Paul wrote his magnum opus, the book of Romans. And at the conclusion, Paul says, he is my fellow worker and he greets you. Chalice goes on to say he was with Paul when he wrote 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, and both letters to the Thessalonians. At some point, he was imprisoned for the book of Hebrews celebrates his release. You should know that our brother has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. And then he says, he was a stalwart defender of the faith against early heresies, a man whose character set an example of godliness, and indisputably one of the most important leaders of the first century church. Who is that man? That man's name was Timothy. And today we're going to study the life of Timothy and three heroes who helped shape uh, his development into the man who carried the torch after Paul uh, the apostle died. So let's open our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you have your Bible, uh, please turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll get you one wherever you're sitting. We need a Bible, so raise your hand if you need one. 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you have the Bible app, you can also follow along in uh, the Bible app event. Let's look at 2 Timothy 1. 1. Paul says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, my beloved child. 
Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 3. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you communicate to us even 2,000 years after this letter was penned by Paul. And I pray, Lord, that you would have your way with us by your Holy Spirit. Be the one who teaches and equips and instructs us today. Encourage us, Lord, wherever we're at. And there's a variety of hearts here this morning. We're all in different places. So, Lord, would you apply this and impact and speak and encourage everyone here today, moms or dads, young people or old, wherever we're at in our stations of life, would you be glorified through your word. We love you. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul wrote two letters to Timothy, his young protege in the faith, two letters. And in his first letter, he addresses Timothy with a phrase that's very unique in the scriptures. He addresses Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.11 as man of God. Now that phrase is used very sparingly in the scriptures. Uh, It's used of Moses. It's used of Samuel. It's used of David, and it's used of Elijah and Elisha, and a handful, just a handful of other men in the Old Testament. But Paul uses that word specifically um, that was used for prophets and kings, and he uses that to Timothy, to speak to Timothy. On the screen, 1 Timothy 6.11, he says, But as for you, here it is, O man of God. And he says, Flee these things. Flee false teaching and lust, and then pursue He says, righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. And then fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Notice with me that Paul commands this young man as a man of God to flee from certain things and to pursue a godly life, to fight the good fight and take hold of eternal life. See, these are proactive These are intentional actions that all young people need to, at some point in their life, begin to purpose in their heart to choose to do those things and live that way over seeking financial gain and false teachings and the kind of the sinful desires of their heart and their youthful lusts. And the scripture tells us that when we're children, we walk like children, we talk like children, we act like children. But there comes a point where we have to say, no, now I'm going to put childish things beside me and I'm going to move on to adulthood. I'm going to move on to maturity, to manhood, to womanhood. And the scriptures tell us that there comes a time we need to advance into maturity. Now, we're living in a culture that doesn't really understand that. We have a new phrase that's not in the scriptures called adolescence. And there's actually social scientists lately have come up with a new term, and it's called adultessence. The idea is this new phrase, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's called kidult. It's the idea of a young person who's now still young even though their body is aged. Biologically, they're in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. But see, then in maturity, they're still a child. They're still a young person. You guys follow what I'm saying? 
I'm not going to point any fingers at anyone specifically. I'm not going to show you pictures of, of kiddles. I'm not going to do that to anyone. But I thought this is interesting that they have the phrase in different cultures for different types of people. Let me just read to you a short quote out of Time Magazine. It says, these kiddles still live with their parents and hop around from job to job and relationship to relationship. They lack direction, they lack commitment, they lack financial independence, and they lack personal responsibility. They're known as boomerang kids, so they move out and come back, uh, adult teenagers, and they're much more than just a generational hiccup or a temporary fad. In fact, according to sociologists and uh, demographers, they're a permanent tread, so, uh, trend. So much so that they have names in different countries. So in England, they're called kippers. So if you're in England, like if you're ever there, what's a kipper? Right, that's that. Uh, they're called nest hawkers in Germany. And in Japan, they're called freeders. In many countries, 20% of the adult population is in this kind of adult essence or kiddled um, group. In fact, in America, one out of five American 26-year-olds lacks financial independence, lacks personal responsibility, or lacks courage to leave the shelter of their parents' root. Uh, I call it, and this is a term, Peter Pan syndrome. You guys remember Peter Pan? He used to say, what? I don't ever want to grow up. I don't ever want to grow up. And I kind of get it. There's a sense that it's kind of fun to reminisce. I mean, this weekend, I will admit, not in my notes here, but I will admit, I watched a few a few Avengers videos on YouTube, okay? So there's a part of us that kind of still has that nostalgia. If there's a Star Wars trailer, okay, I'm excited. If you come to my office at the port, you will see there is Chewie, all right? I have a Chewbacca doll in my office. So there's, you know, a sense that that's okay, right? There's, there's a sense that a little bit of nostalgia, a little bit of, you know, of fun as a kid growing older. But um, what's scary is when we, when we never really turn the switch from childhood to adulthood, right? That's what's scary. And so we have a term in our vocabulary in modern culture called adulting. Have you guys heard of adulting? No, you haven't heard of adulting. I think we have a picture of adulting on the screen, Chris. Yeah, adulting is hard. It is very hard. Um, I want to give you guys a quick adulting 101. Adulting is basically this. It's defined as the practice of behaving in a way that's characteristic of a responsible adult, okay? especially when you have to accomplish mundane but necessary tasks. So this would be this idea. People are like, oh, it's time for me to adult. Like I need to change my tire, right? Or I need to fix dinner at home by myself and not just order, uh, you know, a Postmates. Uh, I know how to balance my checkbook. I even know how to access my, my bank account online. That's adulting. Or waking up before your alarm clock. That's a good one. That's a good one, adulting. Um, but I want to give you guys a quick adulting 101. Okay, there are two things that a young person needs to fully mature from childhood to adulthood. And I'm just going to put them on the screen for you. This is for all of us, okay? If you want to mature, you need two things. You need courage and criterion. In other words, it takes courage to flee from the sins and laziness of our youth. And if we don't have that courage, then we're never going to fully mature. Uh, we may get a year or two or ten older, but we're still going to be kiddolds, okay? It takes audacious boldness for us to say no to the, to the lust in our heart and the temptation around us and the self that drives us uh, to just stay at home and play video games. And we just become boys who can shave, okay? Uh, but it also takes criterion, okay? And what do I mean by that? Criterion uh, means a role model, 
Someone who we can look to who's a, a, either a godly example or an adult example who will say, let me show you what it's like to live life. Let me encourage you. Let me walk with you. Let me give you some resources. We all need that person that we can look up to and emulate. We need a pattern that we can follow. And I'm setting all this up so that you know that Timothy had three of those people. So if you're taking note this morning, Timothy had three people in his life who were that criterion, so to speak, that pattern that he could look to. And so, of course, Paul was one of them. So if you're taking note, Paul was the first. Paul was not the the actual first, but Paul was one of them. All right, so when did Timothy meet Paul? Let's look on the screen. Acts chapter 16, you want to jot this verse down. Acts 16.1 says that Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy. Now, Luke, the writer of Acts, tells us that Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. He goes on and he says, As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches, verse 5, were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So go back to that first um, verse real quick, Acts 16.1. So what happened is Paul came to the cities of Derbe and Lystra close together, and he heard about Timothy from the church. And he heard that Timothy had a good reputation not only there, but 18 miles away in Iconium. So this city that's kind of distant, uh, also the brothers there were speaking about Timothy's godly example. And now notice that Paul wanted to bring Timothy with him, but because Timothy's dad was a Greek, uh, the Jews would have been in opposition to this uncircumcised Greek kid coming into their synagogues. So to kind of uh, temper that whole argument and to kind of advance the gospel in a a very um, strategic way and avoid all potential conflict, Paul goes and has Timothy circumcised. (laughs) Now, It's not that Paul was like caving in on this circumcision issue. He just saw it was more expedient uh, to do this because Timothy's father was a Greek and his mother was a Jew. Okay, now listen, we're not going to go into the details of that particular thing this morning. You're welcome. But that certainly took courage for Timothy uh, to proceed with that suggestion. I mean, did that happen over coffee one morning? Paul's like, hey, Timothy, we need to talk. Let's just, uh, just, are you sitting down? Okay, good. So um, there's this thing that needs to happen. <laughs> I want to take you into the synagogues. And yeah, uh, and Timothy's like, what? Seriously? Um, yeah, but okay, let's do this. Um, there's a little bit of a catch here. But Timothy joins Paul, and they go on this missionary journey. Uh, and on this missionary journey, uh, eventually afterwards, uh, Paul goes on another one, and then eventually is put under house arrest. He's in um, the situation where he appeals to Caesar uh, when he goes to the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, and he's in Rome for several years. Acts 28 ends with that notion that the word of God continues as Paul's under house arrest. Chained to a Roman soldier, he's got his own home, but he's still basically in that situation. But church history goes that after Paul was released, he may have gone to Spain, and then he ends up in front of Nero at a certain point. He ends up becoming uh, beheaded. And before he's beheaded, he's in this dank dungeon, and he's in prison. And it's from there that he records this letter 
uh, to Timothy. His last letter, his last known correspondence is written to uh, Timothy. But notice how he begins it. Look at 2 Timothy 1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying here, I am Christ's apostle. Timothy, my life is completely submitted to God's will because I trust the promise of life found in Jesus alone. And even though I'm facing certain death, I can still rest in the promise of eternal life. Some of you are in that camp. You're facing a a diagnosis or a, a, a situation where you may be facing certain death, but you still have the promise of eternal life in Christ Jesus. And Paul's in that spot. He knows it's coming. He knows the end is near, but he knows that Jesus is ultimately his Lord. So look at verse 2. He addresses Timothy, my beloved child or my beloved son. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now normally here, Paul would just say in his address to letters, he would just say grace to you and peace. But here, he throws in an extra word in between. He throws in the word mercy. Uh, We aren't sure why, but we do know this. We do know grace is getting what you don't deserve, whereas mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Now, some of us this morning, like Timothy, need some real mercy in our lives. We need to not get what we do deserve. And thankfully, the mercies of God are new every morning. There's mercy for you this morning, mom, if you've blown it. There's mercy for you this morning, sinner, if you come and you think, there's no way that a holy God would would allow me in his presence because of my sin. Well, there's mercy for you. And I love that we deserve hell, wrath, judgment, and separation from God for eternity. But because of Christ Jesus, our Lord, we have mercy, and we don't get what we do deserve. It's amazing. I like what Paul uh, calls Timothy. He says, you're my beloved, the word agape, my beloved child, my beloved son. And then he references his father, God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Timothy was a true son in the faith. But listen, he was not Paul's literal biological son. Uh, But see, Paul was still passing down a heritage to Timothy. Notice what he says in verse 3. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Paul says, I'm constantly praying for you in the morning and the evening. And then look at verse 4. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Now, a little bit of backstory. At this point in Paul's life, pretty much everyone had abandoned him. He's there with Luke, uh, and, and that's about it. And so later in the letter, he would say, only Luke is here with me. And Luke, you know, is a doctor, so he's kind of the scientific, nerdy doctor type. He's like, he's the only guy with me. Timothy, please, do something. Send me my cloak, send me my books and the parchments. He wanted his Bible, he wanted his books, he wanted something to keep him warm. And he wanted Timothy's companionship because he's stuck with the doctor. No, I'm just kidding. And so ultimately, uh, few people had stayed faithful and loyal and true. And Timothy was one of those guys. He was one of those faithful few in his life. Some people have said, oh, you, you'll have 10 to 20, 30 great friends in your lifetime. I don't agree. I think we're lucky to have one to two or three in our lifetime of really close, steadfast, faithful friends. The scripture says a faithful friend who can find. If you found one, that's great. And Timothy is one of those faithful few. But notice that he says, as I remember your tears, maybe that moment when Paul was separated from his, his band, 
from his troop, from his group, and put into prison, put into shackles, put into this dungeon, and then eventually beheaded. Perhaps that was the moment when he was taken from Timothy, that Timothy began to weep, began to bawl, began to cry. Timothy said, I, Paul says, I remember your tears. Apparently, Timothy was kind of an emotional guy. He cried, right, at the, at the capture of Paul. Maybe it was another time that Paul's like, I remember your tears. You're always crying. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Paul's situation must have been very discouraging and overwhelming for Timothy to observe. I think that's true for any of us. Someone we look up to and we love, if they're suffering, if they're dying, that's very difficult for us to see someone we care about on the brink of death. It can shake us to our very core. But Paul says, I remember your tears. And as he says that, he says in verse 5 that he remembers something else about Timothy. Look at verse 5. I remember or I'm reminded also of your sincere faith. Now notice this. It's a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. Uh, Paul says, Timothy, your faith is sincere. Okay? It didn't originate with you. It actually originated with your grandmother Lois, who passed it down to your mother Eunice, who passed it down to you. And so Paul then says in verse 6, for this reason, I remind you to fan into the flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Paul encourages Timothy to fan into flame what God had gifted to him. Another way to translate that phrase is uh, to stir up uh, or to kindle afresh. You guys know that all fires will die out if left untouched, if left to themselves. You have to stir up the fire. You have to fan them to to get that flicker uh, to come back. You have to kindle them afresh. And, and I look at nature, and I, I, look, I realize that God has, has actually allowed there to be certain things in nature that naturally, uh, from time to time, go dormant. Uh, like animals. Animals go into hibernation. Uh, sometimes fruit trees are inactive for a season. Not in Bradenton, apparently. Uh, volcanoes seem to go dormant. Uh, but none of those things were designed to stay that way, right? Animals awaken. Uh, those dormant volcanoes sometimes come back to life. Fruit trees have their seasons. And so uh, in our Christian life, we need active courage to fan into flame, that we don't just like allow the faith to kind of go cold and to, to die. And so Paul is saying in verse 7, hey, God didn't give us a spirit of fear. He gave us a spirit of power, love, and he says self-control. Other translations say a sound mind. Have you heard it read that way? Power, love, and a sound mind. Actually, self-control or self-discipline is a better more accurate translation, self-discipline. He says, God didn't give us a spirit of fear, Timothy. Now, in verse 7, that word can be translated cowardice or timidity. Now, it's estimated between 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, there are about 25 references of Paul um, speaking to Timothy and encouraging him to not shy away from confrontation, Not shy away from timidity, but step up and have boldness and be strong. See, the reason I'm giving you all this backstory is I believe that Timothy actually needed help in a lot of ways. I think Timothy had a lot of weaknesses, but he also had some strengths. Let me share the weaknesses for a minute. 1 Timothy 4.12 hints that Timothy was young and inexperienced. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.12, don't let anyone look down on you or despise you for your youth. Okay, so he was a young person. He wasn't older. Uh, 1 Timothy 5.23 on the screen, 
hints about something. Paul says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. What does that mean? Well, I believe that Timothy had a sickly disposition. So he's young and inexperienced, but he's also sick all the time. Paul has to say, hey, stop drinking water. You need to start drinking wine on occasion because your stomach continues to give you an issue. You've got some physical problems, Timothy. Uh, not only that, but it, right here in verse um, chapter, uh, chapter uh, 1 of 2 Timothy, Paul says, you need to know that God has not given us a spirit of fear. You need to overcome this timidity. Uh, and when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, we pick up on the same idea. 1 Corinthians 16 says, this is Paul talking to Corinth. He says, when Timothy comes, see to it that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now, if Timothy was a bold, brash guy, then Paul would say, hey, be ready for Timothy. He's kind of like abrupt. And just be ready. Receive him. Welcome him. He's cool. No, but what does he say? This alludes to the fact that Timothy's probably a little bit timid. He's saying, hey, like help him out. Put him at ease. Welcome him in. Make sure he's uh, along the way. And and, uh, don't let anyone despise him. So if you're keeping count, the person taking over for Paul had some major weaknesses. Think about this. He's afraid of confrontation. (laughs) He's sick all the time. Uh, He's super young, and he cries a lot. Okay, That's the guy who takes over for Paul. Now, of course Timothy needed a father figure, and who better than the Apostle Paul? And yet, even though Paul had to encourage him to have courage in some areas, Timothy had some incredible strengths. And these strengths far outweighed these little issues that he had uh, physically and emotionally. You see, Timothy had the role model of two other very important people, his mother and his grandmother. Look back at verse 5. Verse 5 says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. It's a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. Timothy had a stalwart example of faith in his grandmother and in his mother. And this impressed Paul enough that he recruited him for ministry. In fact, when we read Acts 16, Timothy's, as we just said, his faith had preceded him even from nearby cities. Why was that? I believe it was because the foundation that his mother and grandmother laid for him made that impact. Even before all these years of proving himself in ministry to Paul and being one of the few faithful who was remaining by Paul's side to the end, way before all of that, Timothy's upbringing had set him apart to give him a reputation and a calling to do great things for God. Now, I want to look at three aspects of Eunice, Timothy's mother, and his grandmother Lois, and how these ladies impacted him spiritually, and how they apply to our lives as well, okay? So if you're taking note, three things that we can walk away with today from these moms. Number one, and we'll just reference Eunice because it's Mother's Day, but number one, Eunice had a sincere faith. I want you to jot that down, take a picture of the screen. A sincere faith. Notice in verse five, Paul says, your faith is sincere, but it didn't come with you first. It came from your mom and from your grandmother. Uh, The word for sincere here, if you circle it, uh, it actually is an interesting word. It means unhypocritical or unfeigned. What does it mean? It means the real deal. Timothy's mom was not just the mom who was keeping up appearances. She was not someone who knew about Jesus but didn't actually know Jesus. No, she had learned about Jesus possibly from her own mom and then eventually trusted Christ with her own life. And she imparted that sincere example to her son. 
I read this week about four scholars who were arguing over Bible translations. I thought this was kind of funny. One said, well, I prefer the King James Version because it has beautiful, eloquent Old English. The second scholar said, I prefer the English Standard Version because it's literal and it moves the reader from passage to passage with confident accuracy in the original text. The third scholar said, well, I like the New Living Translation because it's easy to read and it's easy to preach in today's English. Well, after giving the issue further thought, the fourth scholar said, well, I personally prefer my mother's translation. (laughs) Uh, The other scholar started laughing and he said, no, no, no. My mother translated it. She translated every page of the Bible into life. And that was the most convicting translation I ever saw. Wow. See, next week we're starting the book of Habakkuk. And the theme of that study is the word trust. Trust. And we're going to see how important it is that we have faith We're going to see that the just shall live by faith and how radically that changed the church. And we're going to realize that faith is not perfect. Sometimes we doubt. Sometimes we struggle. The father of our faith, who's that? Anyone know the father of our faith? He's known as Father Abraham. Someone said Ralph, and it's not Ralph. It's Abraham. Even the father of our faith had his doubts and moments of struggle and fear. Listen, but that doesn't mark our faith. We're not marked by unbelief. We continue to trust God even when the world seems to give way. And Eunice exemplified that example to her son. Listen, moms, never undervalue the simplicity of living out the gospel in front of your kids. Don't undervalue that. When we do baby dedications here at Shoreline, we often will quote from the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, where we're to... Uh, know that there is one Lord, there's one God, and then we're to take his commands and his precepts and we're to write them uh, on, the, on the tablets of our hearts and we're also to write them around our homes. We're to, we're to talk about the scripture and we're to practice scripture and live scripture and meditate on scripture. And sometimes we think that the kids' ministry or the youth ministries are the ones that do that work, that they are the ones that impact our children. And they certainly do. But the most important person who's shaping your children's life spiritually is you, mom. It's you, dad. When I was a youth pastor, my wife Jen hosted a uh, purity conference locally for teen girls. And the idea was to know that our purity and our holiness is rooted in the personal work of Christ. It was a wonderful time and well attended. And at one point, Jen did an anonymous survey of the girls. And this blew our minds. The survey was this. Hey, young lady, who is the one person who's impacted your view of sexuality more than anyone else? And there were no answers. It was just write the name in of whoever that person was. The number one answer by far was my father. Isn't that crazy? In other words, my father is the one who sets the tone for our family with purity, with sexual purity, uh, with Uh, holiness. So moms, dads, don't ever undervalue the importance of living your sincere faith in front of your children, even your very young children. Uh, Do it audaciously. I love to invite my kids to have devotions with me. I don't say, get out of dad's room, I'm having quiet time. No, come on guys, scoop them up in my lap. And they're big for that now. Now they're 15 and 12, so that's awkward. But come here, I want you to read the Bible with me. Spend some time with me in the Word. If they're struggling, I want to be there with them. I just want to listen and ask questions. And often the conversation goes to the gospel. Listen, you don't have to force your kids like sit down. We're having family devotions. Everyone be be quiet, right? You don't have to do that. I know we often feel the pressure to do that. Everyone be quiet and sit still. We're going to learn about Jesus' love, right? (laughs) Not to do that. 
A lot of times on the way to school, kids will just bring up questions. Dad, how is there a trinity? And you go, oh boy, it's going to be a long, let's take the scenic route for this one. We're going to take our time getting to school. Listen, we don't force the faith down our kids' throats. We produce thirst by living a salty life, okay? We don't force the faith. We produce thirst, okay? Uh, which brings us to our second aspect about Eunice. Number two, she taught Timothy the scriptures, okay? Jot this down. You can teach someone the scriptures. Listen to this verse later in the same letter, 2 Timothy 3.14. Paul says, but as for you, continue. So I'm not adding something new. Just continue doing this. What you've already learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how, look at this, from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be a, a complete, equipped for every good work. Work, excuse me. Uh, now, if you look back at verse uh, 14, he says, knowing from whom you've learned it, in the original Greek, the most reliable manuscripts have that word as plural. He's not saying, you know whom you learned it from me. No, he's saying plural. You've known it from a multiple group of people. I believe he's referencing his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice here. Paul simply watered the seed that his mother and grandmother had already planted in young Timothy. Now notice in verse 15 that Paul says from childhood. Another translation says from infancy. Wow. Like Eunice didn't wait until her boy could read. She began reading and no doubt singing, no doubt writing the word of God in her home. My mom's here today, and my mom taught me the scriptures and memorizing scripture from a very uh, young age. And those verses still remain in my heart and mind today. Now, how simple is this, guys? How simple? I'm not here to lay a, a heavy moralistic guilt trip on any moms. This is an encouragement. This should be refreshing for us that all of us can do this. We all have the ability, the simple ability, to take time to read the Bible to somebody else. Listen, if your child is in the womb, why not open the Bible and read Scripture out loud? Why not do that? We did that with our son. We, we would read Scripture when he was still uh, in the womb, and we would play music. One time, I decided to put on some really loud rock music, and that wasn't good because he was born the next day. Uh, so I don't recommend that necessarily, but um, read Scripture out loud. When you tuck your kids in at night... When they wake up in the morning, when they're discouraged, when they're doubting, when they're overwhelmed, when they're afraid, when they're rejoicing, one of the simplest and greatest gifts that we can give someone is just to share scripture with them. When I visit people in the hospital, I want to, on the way, pray, Lord, give me a verse that I can encourage them with, that I can share with them. When I'm at a funeral, even to an unbeliever, I'm going to read scripture. When I'm doing a wedding, I'm going to read scripture. When I wake up in the morning and I have an opportunity to interact with someone, I want to have the scripture, the word of God on my lips. Moms, I urge you to do this. Listen, it's not enough to pick your kids up after service and ask them the two omnipresent questions we always ask our kids. You know those two questions after church. Number one, did you have fun? And number two, what'd you learn? We do that, right? What'd you learn and did you have fun? It's not enough just to do that, okay? We should be singing scripture. We should be teaching our kids to memorize it. We should print it out. Hang scripture on the walls. If you need some, I'll post something this week. There's 52 must-know scriptures, and you can memorize them as a family, uh, one per week. We did that a few years ago. Listen, it's the word of God, and as Paul says, it's profitable. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correcting, and training in righteousness 
that the man of God, there's that word again, may be thoroughly equipped. I wonder if 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 has ever been specifically applied to child raising. Like we always hear all scriptures God breathe, and we did a teaching on that recently. But I wonder if we realize, man, that's kind of for moms and dads. All scripture is useful for correcting our kids, for reproofing our kids, for training our kids and training them in righteousness. Awesome. Stephen Cole says this, children need to know more than, quote, Jesus wants to be your friend, so you need to invite him into your heart, quote. They need to know what God's word reveals about the condition of their hearts, that they are rebellious and disobedient toward God. They need to know not only that God is loving, but also that he's holy and just, and that he will bring terrible, everlasting punishment on those who do not turn from their sins and trust in Christ. They need to know what Christ did on the cross, dying as our substitute. They need to understand that God forgives our sin because of his kindness apart from our good works. They need to know what saving faith is as opposed to empty profession that does not result in salvation. Not only did Eunice demonstrate a sincere faith, but she declared the word of God to her son. But thirdly, on the screen, she was also an example of quiet perseverance. And maybe you missed this, but when we first met Timothy in Acts 16, we found out that his father was a Greek, but his mother is a Jewish woman who's a believer, and that's why he had to be circumcised. Now, we don't know much more about Timothy's dad, but chances are he was an unbeliever. Now, it's not expressed in the text. It's merely implied, but my thought is that if Tim's dad were a Christian, then he would point that out. Uh, I think Luke would have said that. Most likely, Eunice had to persevere in a very difficult circumstance, the difficult circumstance of being married to an unbeliever, which means that she was kind of like a single mom raising Timothy alone in the faith. But listen, even though she was a quiet example of perseverance, she wasn't the only one. You see, before Paul recruited Timothy and had him circumcised, a few years earlier, Paul had been to those same cities that Timothy was from, Lystra and Derby. In Acts chapter 14, you can read it later, his first missionary journey, God uses Paul to heal this crippled man, and this miracle causes the people of the city to lose it. They're overwhelmed. They can't believe it. And so they basically almost begin worshiping Paul and Barnabas, thinking that they're Greek gods. And Paul does everything he can to stop them. They start sacrificing animals. He's like, stop. He does everything to just restrain them. Uh, but the enemies of the gospel soon show up, and they turn the crowd against Paul. The, the crowd wants to worship him. He's like, no, no, no. Well, then they turn, and now they want to kill him. They drag him outside of the city gates, and they stone him basically to death. The brothers come around him. The crowd, the mob leaves. The, the brothers come around him. They pray for him, and then he, he kind of comes up and comes to. And he gets up. And Acts 14 says he goes back into the city. Now, I love the gospel and I love Bradenton. But if I went to preach in downtown Bradenton this week and I was stoned and thrown into Palmetto, guys, I'm just letting you know, I'm not going to get up and go, hey, let's try that again and cross the bridge, cross over the green bridge and go back into town. I'm going to take a few weeks to recover and be calling my friend, be calling my mom, I'm going to call my friends and, and like, let's post on Facebook. Did you see what happened to Pastor Pilgrim? And here's Paul going back in to just carry on. Hey, I didn't finish. Hey, by the way, I had a couple more things to say. I'm not done. You guys interrupted me. Let me finish my thought, right? And he goes and he completes the gospel message. Now listen, that would have absolutely impacted a young, timid boy named Timothy. 
who hears of the boldness of this man of God who comes to preach the gospel, basically killed, and he gets up to go preach the gospel again. This would have ignited Timothy. I see my dad, and my dad's kind of been wayward, and he's not bold, and he's not living for Jesus. And here's this other man who is willing to go for it. And Timothy, I believe, uh, may have had this example of Paul in his mind when he began to uh, pursue Jesus. In a home where his father did not receive Christ but neglected him, Timothy had his mom and his grandmother to point him to Jesus, but he also had an example of a godly man who wasn't his father that he could look up to. Eunice needed Paul to step in, even though he wasn't biological, uh, and continue to set that example and carry the baton they started to deeper spiritual depths. Now listen, you may have a young person here in your life who you're not related to. But that doesn't mean that you aren't still making a huge impact in their life. Perhaps this morning you didn't have a godly mother in your life or a godly father. And I'm not saying that this person necessarily replaces them. But I see the goodness of God in a spiritual way still fulfilling a role of influence in many of our lives through someone who just had those three things. They had a sincere faith. They had a persevering faith. They had a contagious faith. And they read the scripture and shared life experiences with us. Listen, if you still don't have a person like that in your life, would you go to the Lord and say, Lord, put that person of influence and bring them into my life? Now, before we close this morning, I want to address a few different people. And so go ahead and close your Bibles. We'll get settled here before we wrap things up. I just want to address a few different people here this morning. First, for the mom who feels like you're a failure... I just want you to know that, like Timothy from Paul, there's grace, mercy, and peace for you. See, God always honors repentance. And so if you've made some major mistakes, maybe even today on the way here, you know what's awesome is that we can acknowledge those mistakes and we can humble ourselves. We can trust God to work all things for good in our lives. Maybe it needs to be an apology. Maybe it's a letter that needs to be written. Maybe it's a phone call. I probably would prefer that you not text someone, right? But, but maybe make that phone call and then prayerfully take the initiative to live out your sincere faith in front of your children. Maybe you came to Christ later in life and you need to call an adult son or daughter and say, you know, I've made some mistakes and I hope you know that I want to acknowledge those mistakes. Forgive me. Will you forgive me? And they may say, no, I don't forgive you. But you just need to bring that to the Lord and know that there's grace for you today, there's mercy, and there's peace. Secondly, I want to address the mom who thinks that she needs to be super mom or wonder woman, okay? I just want to address you for a minute. You think that you got to be perfect mom. Everything's got to be great. And I wonder if you've maybe overcomplicated things. You've, you've maybe overthought things. i got to be everything to everyone at all times 24-7. And then you go into your room and, or you drop the kids off and then you collapse, okay? Uh, listen, you don't have to be superhero or successful or famous to be impacting in someone's life. Theodore Roosevelt, the president, said, when all is said, it is the mother and the mother only who's a better citizen uh, than the soldier who fights for his country. I think we have the quote on the screen. He says, the successful mother, there it is, the successful mother, the mother who does her part in rearing and training aright the boys and girls who are to be the men and women of the next generation, is of greater use to the community and occupies, if she only would realize it, a more honorable as well as more important position than any man in it. The mother is the one supreme asset of the national life. 
She is more important by far than the successful statesman or businessman or artist or scientist. We're not diminishing or, or you know, lessening the impact of men by any means. But what we, do, what we are doing is elevating and honoring moms to that place and saying they are that important. You are that important. I love the poem written by Mark DeWolf Howe. It's called The Valiant. Here's what he says in The Valiant. Not for the star-crowned heroes, the men that conquer and slay, but a song for those that bore them, the mothers braver than they. With never a blare of trumpets, with never a surge of cheers, they march to the unseen hazard, pale, patient volunteers. And moms, we want to honor you if you've been behind the scenes. You don't need to, uh, to have all of the upfront uh, attention, and you probably don't want it, but we want to recognize that you deserve it. Now, finally, for the person who's not a mom, but wanted to be. Maybe a physical, legal, or biological limitation kept you from being a mom. But listen, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that you are not a, uh, it may mean you're, you're not a technical mother, but it doesn't mean that you're not a person of great influence, a spiritual mom. And there's certainly people around you who greatly benefit from your kindness, from your encouragement, from your wisdom, and from your persevering strength. Now the question is, are you willing to invest uh, someone and read scripture, then point them to the Lord? They are in your life. So as we close, I want to invite our worship team forward, and we're going to close in song. And we're going to do something different today. I want us to all stand together this morning, so stand with me. Moms, dads, sons, daughters, can we all acknowledge this morning that in our own strength, we are insufficient for these things? Can we just nod our head in agreement this morning by faith? We are insufficient for these things. Okay, Eunice simply passed on what she learned from Lois. Lois simply learned what she learned from the church community as the gospel was preached, and she taught her daughter what she had learned. Paul charged Timothy, guard what I entrusted to you. And yet that same gospel ministry was entrusted by Jesus himself to Paul. And so in our own abilities, guys, we're not sufficient for these things. Amen? We're not sufficient. Uh, And so as we close today, I want us to look to Christ, who is our sufficiency. We're going to sing a song. It's a hymn. It's one of the oldest hymns in Christianity. It's called Be Thou My Vision. And the hymn is actually an Irish song. It's been around since the 6th century. We're singing songs from the 6th century here today. How cool is that? Now, one of the uh, earliest known Christian hymns written in Gaelic by a guy named Delon. He was an Irish poet and Latin scholar. He was considered the king of the poets. It's a simple prayer. And when Delon was a young boy, he became blind from studying too much uh, when they didn't have things like glasses or contacts or laser surgery. So he was given the name of Delon, which means little blind one. And so he wrote this song because he was unable to see God on his own. He said, God, I want you to be my vision. He's unable to see. He said, I can't see, but I want God to be my vision. Isn't that the best prayer that we could pray as a Christian? God, be my vision. Isn't that the best prayer we can pray as a mom? Lord, I don't know how to raise these little guys, but be my vision today. Is there a greater legacy that we can leave someone else, whether they're our kids or not, that God would be our vision, that we would live a sincere faith, that we would leave a heritage spiritually, that we would persevere. So moms, this morning, stop trusting in your abilities, okay? Rest in the finished work of Christ. Sons and daughters, if your mom is on this side of eternity, call them today and honor them and thank them and pray with them. If your mom has passed away, 
then recall that person of influence in your life. And if they're here, thank them today and honor them today. And let's ask God that we as a church would look to him to be our vision, for him to be our everything, for him to be our delight this morning, and that Jesus would be alone the one who satisfies. Amen? Let's pray together this morning. Bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you that you are Lord. And this morning we acknowledge that we need Jesus. We need Jesus in our tempers and in our shortcomings and in our failures and in our frustrations. We need Jesus to help us overcome our sin. As we face the wrath of God apart from the finished work of Christ, we must fall upon Jesus and say, save me, Lord. And Lord, we thank you that we can trust you with our physical bodies, with our futures, with our death and our eternities. Lord, we trust you this morning. Be our vision. Allow us to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.